Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Talking Tactics. This is our Group A preview. My name is Daniel. Have hope. Hey everyone, it's Carl Anker. Hope you're doing well. Indeed. So, the World Cup is here. It's been four years or four and a half years almost. How are you guys feeling? We'll start with HH and we'll go to Carl. Yeah, no, look, I'm ready to roll, man. You know, what we are here right now. Again, I'm not happy about having a World Cup whilst being subdued in Canadian weather. But it is what it is, man. You know, um, I'm not going to have my beautiful, sunny, out in my shorts, my Hawaiian t-shirts kind of a World Cup. But it is what it is. We're here. Let's deal with it. And also as well, we're already here, okay? And Blatter says that it's going to be given to Qatar, human rights violations. We are 13 days away. What, what are you going to do that's going to change anything? Come on, man. That Blatter interview has really boiled my blood. I know we talk a lot about Sir Blatter here on this podcast, but the brass neck of the man. He gave Africa a World Cup. <laughs> he brought the World Cup to Africa, man. So and like, he, needs, he needs flogging. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I was half hope. I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. Relax. I didn't say that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't say that. I've, relax, said relax. I've, I've said enough stuff. I've said enough relax, stuff. I didn't relax, say that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not claiming flogging, man. Please. <laughs> I so, didn't say that. what did he say today? He said that the World Cup should not have been in Qatar. He said, no, it shouldn't, it shouldn't have gone to Qatar. He said, Qatar is too small a country and the World Cup needs to go to a bigger nation. He just read like one of the most. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said. <laughs> Unbelievable. <sighs> We knew this at the time, though. We've been new. Which is the part. Are you guys anticipating this one in the way that you might have for Russia or Brazil or South Africa or Germany? Like, does it feel like a World Cup? When it starts, we'll know. But I think it's one of those things of like, football is football, man. Once it starts, I I think basically, you know, after these weekend's games and when we now start to now build into that week, basically by next Monday, it's like, okay, guys, it is what now. It feels different, but we're here now because you're not hearing the squads are coming through, squads will be announced. So by the time we get to next Monday and this the season is has taken it's mid break, then look around. We're, we're here. Carl, are they making you go? No, no, they're not making me do it. <laughs> they're not making me do anything. I'm, I'm not going to Qatar. I will right. be doing something that you will find out. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. To answer your question, I yeah, I'm like hope. I'm I'm not excited about this World Cup. I know I should be excited, but I was pretty reluctant before the beginning of Russia 2018, and then such was the nature of the group stages that you got swept along the way. Uh, and I believe quite a few organisers of Qatar 2022 are hoping that when the football starts, people will be able to suspend their disbelief and, and put things forward. But one, I'm exhausted by the amount of games that have occurred in this short and condensed canon to get the World Cup in. And mm. two, 
I'm going every time a football player goes over injured, I am I am reminded that the World Cup is around the corner. I'm going, why are we doing this? We're recording this right now, and Borussia Dortmund are playing, and Jude Bellingham's just gone over, and he's he's holding his shoulder right now, and I've just you know put my head over my hands, going, oh my god, no, he's not Bellingham, not Bellingham. <laughs> Anybody but him, because Bellingham, yeah, I I truly believe Bellingham's going to have a amazing World Cup, and it's that thing of if a player gets injured this week. That's it. That's their World Cup. Oh, no, but, but did, you, did you hear what Tite... Well, I don't know whether this is true, but apparently Tite, the Brazil coach, said that players should fake injuries. I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard this conversation on social media that Brazilian players have been instructed to pick up a knock. I, 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 as far as I've researched, there's, not, there's no truth to it. But it, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, you were talking right now, Giovanni Lo Celso's just been confirmed to not be at the World Cup because he's picked up an injury and that means Argentina's just had a dent. You could make a, a knockout stage team from all the players that are injured. Or it's, yeah, it's crazy. It's I, crazy. I mean, you, your midfield is Conte and Pogba. Exactly, man. That's pretty good. Like Davies uh, had a scare for Canada. So it's been tricky. But I would say, I would, I'd make the argument, Carl, that this happens before every major tournament. It's just the timing of it. I know it happens before every tournament, but I think the oddity of it. So one, of course, Winter World Cup, that's really weird. Two, we we cannot, I can't put it out of my mind, just what went into building those stadiums. Mm-hmm. Yes, Qatar is not the first World Cup to have built stadiums off the back of cheap labour that was treated horribly uh, and unfortunately will not be the last World Cup, it seems. But it's, it's of such a staggering scale. It can be hard to suspend disbelief. There's a great piece from Musa Wonga and GQ this week talking about how the, the joy of the World Cup, the World Cup at its best makes you go, Amazing. How has he done that? How has that football player done that? How has that happened? Your greatest World Cup moments are full of times where you basically believe in magic. Benjamin Pavard's goal is a thing like, how did he do that? And it is very hard for me to suspend my disbelief right now about this World Cup because it is so obvious what Mm. has gone on to, to put this together. And it's so obvious how many rules have been broken or disrupted. I hope it'll be a good tournament. And I think as Hope has just alluded to, I think after two or three group stage games, maybe I can suspend some disbelief. But I'm talking to you right now. Uh, this morning, I, I put a, sent a call out on Twitter and I asked for people, you know, if they are donating to charity for, for human rights causes or whatnot, to please recommend so I can donate to some as well. I'm not going to, I am going to watch the games. Even if I wasn't working, I probably would have watched a decent percentage of those games because I like football. But I think the difficulty is there are a number of people in the world of football that often look to take advantage of football fans' love of football to do things I'd much rather them not do. Just to go off Carl's point is like, you know what I always say? <laughs> this is down to FIFA. <laughs> we knew about, I knew about this two years ago of the human rights thing because there was a massive article that was that was done. I don't even know how much to say <laughs> because I want FIFA to maybe give me a job in the future. So... <laughs> But that's the point. That right there is the rub. Is that some people are actually scared to talk about what's going on in Qatar because they want FIFA, they want jobs with different like oh, no no wait, wait, wait. oh no 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 don't don't do, do, do it's that such a rock and a hard place. No 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 no, no 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 I'm not saying not, that's you, but no no, no it's like no, it is not it is no 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 Gary Neville. He said mm-hmm. everything, he's talked up, down, left, right, and everything. But where is he right now in Qatar? Five star service and so forth. So guys have said everything. Because they're saying like everybody has said anything, but you know that you're still going to go have that job, have that issue. And even see, but, but the issue why it's futile is even the Qatari guys that says, cool, well done, we accept and so on. Because they know that nothing's going to change. We're still going to have this. 
it's still going to go through. So nothing anyone says is going to change anything. And I think once things start and the World Cup starts going, the raw reality is people will just focus on the four, four ball. Yeah. And that will be the thing. I think some people will, some people will not. It will be a, a spectrum of choice. Even though I'm annoyed that Seth Blatter said what he said, I think that's pretty shocking, right? I, I, I did not expect Seth Blatter to come out publicly and say, no, nah, we shouldn't have done this. I did not expect Zinedine Zidane, a man who is of very little word to say, this probably shouldn't have happened. This is the World Cup that's both the first of its kind and the last of its kind. And I think we're, we're going to see loads of stuff throughout the tournament. That's just going to be weird. And I think some people will be able to switch off and just enjoy football, whereas other people go, this is too weird for me. I'm not enjoying this as much as, as I enjoyed Brazil 2014, which of course, you know, had its own different problems. Or Russia 2018, which had its own different problems. In doing these previews, like there are some countries that we don't know much about. And Qatar was one where I thought I might struggle to find somebody, but I didn't. Hopefully you guys enjoy the conversation I had with the homie Martin Lowe. So here's that. Uh, I'm Martin Lowe. I'm an Asian football writer. I work with uh, the Asian Game and the Asian Game podcast. I suppose the, the, there's two, two Qatars as such. The ruling body and the what kind of everybody probably perceives as when they think about Qatar 2022 is the corruption behind the, the World Cup bid. We'd argue that there's been corruption behind every World Cup bid, but this is more prominent. This is more in your face. There's a quite an understandable kind of logic to it, given the, the scandals that have kind of fallen out of it. So from their perception, it's um, trying to put Qatar on the map in terms of um, as a soft power politically, but also as a kind of world or even regional uh, leader in sports. Um, and that kind of focuses on the football side of things. In terms of the red, regular people who live in Qatar, there's obviously the population is relatively small, so it's, it's kind of as small as Yorkshire. But the football population, football is a popular sport. It's the national sport. There is a lot of passion um, within Qatar for the game. And I think it's been a long time coming. The fact that it's coming in such a glitzy way in terms of a World Cup kind of oversteps the mark in terms of the size of the country, but it's something that um, means a lot for the country on both sides of the park. A large-scale political move, but also as day-to-day -day running for normal Qatari people. There's this thing we call host nation tax on the podcast. Um, <laughs> how much do you think Qatar will benefit from the tournament being held in their home country? I think in two ways. As you mentioned, host, host nations usually do better than usual. They've been settled down in Qatar for six months now. So none of the, the national team, the extended national team, up to 30 players have played domestic football for the last six months. So they're all kind of aware of the surroundings. But on a second point, um, Qatar, over the last 10 years since the World Cup um, has been announced, they've try to test themselves at different international tournaments. And generally, they do a lot better in those kind of environments than they do in friendlies, for example. They've done really well in the Asian Cup. Obviously, they were champions in 2019, which was a, a relative surprise even for uh, people within within Asia. They competed at the Copa America, even though they got an earliest uh, knockout. They got to the semifinals of the Gold Cup. They've got a couple of players that really kind of show up on the international stage when it is a tournament. And it's that hope that they can actually switch their form once it gets to a kind of an international stage on a competitive field. The Asian Cup or the way the um, Asian Cup works is that that follows directly after the last World Cup as such. So 2018 was obviously the last World Cup. Six months later um, is the Asian Cup. Qatar, as I say, surprised quite a significant amount of people uh, to win that with a very young team as such. Um, but that's been the pinnacle of kind of their achievements so far, as, as you'd expect. 
three years have gone by and given the, the small base of players that they've got, uh, which is all based around a young cohort that were 24, 25 at that time and now getting up to 27, 28, there's very little manoeuvre within that in terms of new players coming in, some form players, etc. It's very hard to kind of pick a team that was doing well in 2019 and assume that they're going to do the same in 2022. And as you mentioned, the competitive football kind of elements haven't been there over those three years. They did take part in Asian Cup qualification, which is like the earlier part of World Cup qualification. But that's usually kind of against weaker opposition, which they strolled through quite easily. But in the last year or so, when other teams in Asia have been competing towards the World Cup, they've had to kind of make do with friendlies or opportunities kind of going to Europe, etc. to kind of try and get some of that competitive spirit. And I think that's probably where they're going to lose out, if anything, uh, when it comes to the World Cup. Because back in 2019, if they replicate that sort of thing, I have no fear about them competing at this level, even against the likes of Netherlands. Obviously, I don't think they're going to necessarily be coming above Netherlands, but if they can play their A game, they can definitely trouble them in certain aspects of the game. Let's talk expectation. Firstly, how far do you think they can go? And then how far do you think they will go? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interestingly posed question in terms of that. So it can go and the potential that they've got to do it. I, we look back to 2018, Russia came into the World Cup with very low expectations. They weren't in great form on the run up to it and really surprised everyone. I think they got through to the quarterfinals, I think. I think that's a similar sort of level. If Qatar got lucky with the draw, I think the, the group stage draw is not too bad. On paper, all I wanted really from that draw was um, a, a winnable game in the first game. Uh, Ecuador initially looked an okay draw for that. Having seen them against Japan and Saudi Arabia in the last week, I'd probably get a little bit more worried about Qatar's chances because they do look an impressive team. But if they can get the if they can get the crowd and the momentum as we've spoken about as a host, I can see a possibility of them kind of going far um, in this tournament. So that's how far they can go, how far they will go, basing it on kind of the struggles that they've had in the last couple of months. So they've, as I mentioned before, they've had a six-month training camp um, away from domestic football. They've kind of decided that's the best route for preparation. And that's not been the best preparation ground as such. They've been playing semi-competitive games against kind of local teams and so on and still struggling with teams that they should be beaten. So on current form, my fear is that they're going to kind of have the humiliation that everybody in Qatar doesn't want. Given the kind of furore around the World Cup, I think they won't have many neutral backing unless they start like a house on fire, which they have the capability to. They've got the capability in players, but I worry that the coach may start to kind of go a little bit more defensive given their current form at the moment. Is there pressure from either Qatari citizens or perhaps the Federation to get out of the group? I think I think there's the significant pressure from any kind of football fan base, um, and especially given the kind of rise, especially with the 2019 Asian Cup win, Qatari fans that wouldn't have necessarily watched Qatar and they may have focused more on uh, the Premier League or La Liga are now starting to focus and going, oh, actually, I support the national team because they're doing well. So with that expectation, um, there grows a bit more pressure. We've seen that over the kind of last year and a little bit more kind of social media action. Fans are starting to get on board. In terms of the federation, I think there will be pressure to not embarrass themselves. And I think that is the kind of bare minimum from their perspective. I don't think there's this kind of delusions of grandeur that the team are going to win the World Cup or anywhere near it. It's mainly about the hosting and what they can kind of achieve from that perspective. But kind of an embarrassment where they kind of potentially lose all three games or anything like that would start to kind of be a really, really worrying kind of concern for them. Um, they have it in them to kind of do the best they can within the group. 
it's that kind of concern that an embarrassment is on the cards if it does go wrong. So I'm sure a lot of people haven't watched Qatar. It, Qatar or Qatar? Depending on where you are in the world, I think. Oh, it doesn't, um, okay, it's, a, it's an yeah, achievable so in the world. Okay. It's, uh, it's one of those that there isn't, well, there is probably a right way of saying it, but even <laughs> there's debate between the Arabic community about how you should say it if you're not from Qatar, etc. Fair enough. I'm self-conscious in any event. So what will we see on the pitch? What is their formational style, tactical style? Who's the manager? All these types of things. Yeah, so it's, um, as, as I mentioned, the evolution of Qatari football at a national team level uh, started back in 2010 when they, they won the hosting rights to the World Cup. So there's a real kind of conscious effort to kind of say, well, what, what, kind of, what do we want to look like when we get there? There was um, two avenues that they could potentially go down. One being, we'll continue with the current method at that time, which was nationalization of players. For example, Spain with Diego Costa, Italy with uh, Jorginho, trying to bring in players from who play in your national team, uh, your national league, the very best of them. So predominantly in Qatar, is a lot of South Americans, and then just nationalize them into the national team. The other route was to really go helpful ever on the youth system which was kind of going through the aspire academy the aspire academy itself is built on kind of spanish ideals 2010 was obviously around the time when spanish football was kind of all in vogue in terms of focusing this is the way forward for it it's headed up by ivan bravo who's a lot of connections with leeds as part of that he brought in a spanish coach felix sanchez initially take up took up uh, the reins of the under 15 cohort back in 2015 fast forward kind of eight years the national team isn't doing too great with the nationalization. A number of coaches have tried and failed to try and get that unity. That At that point, it was a kind of a switch just before the Asian Cup in terms of we've got to trust the youth players. There's a good youth team coming through, headed up by this Felix Sanchez. Let's give him the job. Obviously, Asian Cup 2019 was a, a massive success for Qatar and Felix Sanchez has continued on that kind of route. Initially, the setup of the team has kind of been more Spanish ideals. So they've looked for possession-based football and that kind of fed through from club sides. So obviously, Xavi was a coach of Al-Sad. A lot of the players are coming from that team. And that was a big success kind of at the Asian Cup. Um, they kind of tinkered it slightly because Qatari players are more physical, more quick, um, and it was a bit more direct. But since the kind of 2019 and when they've had struggles and potentially kind of some doubts about kind of where they sit, I suppose, they've tried to follow a different route. So the formation that led to Asian Cup success was a 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1. Now we're going to a bit more of a modern day 3-5-2 with wing backs. As many people kind of know with that 3-5-2 kind of formation, it works brilliantly when you've got the players that fit that system. But unfortunately, it's, it's starting to look like you've got five at the back for Qatar in terms of how do we get these kind of flying wing backs up and how does it work with other players? So that's my kind of worry in the last six months or a year. It's felt a little bit more defensive looking. For, for anybody that hasn't watched Qatar before, a couple of players to kind of look out for. It will be the front two, uh, Almo Ezali. He's the predominant kind of force in Qatari teams. He goes missing quite a lot as a kind of a leading striker, but in the big occasions, he's always kind of turned up and he was golden boot winner in the, the Asian Cup. He's a, a lanky striker, quite skinny, doesn't really fit kind of modern day striker mould, but he is highly impressive in front of goal. His strike partner, Akram Afif, probably the one player maybe that people have probably heard of outside of um, Qatar or outside of Asia. He had a spell at Villarreal, sporting Hion, didn't really work out. Um, and if it wasn't for the World Cup and the QFA's uh, kind of involvement in it, he probably would have stayed in Europe, 
maybe bounced around a couple of leagues a little bit, but they had a big influence in bringing him back to Qatar and saying, you're staying at home now, at least you get consistent minutes. We think this is the best for the World Cup squad. He's, he's a typical kind of winger type, quite creative. Anything good usually comes through him. So his link-up play with Almez Ali will be crucial. The rest of the kind of team are quite kind of functional and trying to get how uh, Felix Sanchez wants from his side. And he's very stubborn in terms of who gets into that unit. Qatar will definitely be a team rather than a set of individuals, but it'll be interesting to see kind of how that works out against three very kind of accomplished teams. You stole my question with players to watch, so that's <laughs> always fun when the person just takes the question. I like that. All right, I have two more questions. Yep. Who do you think wins the World Cup? Uh, for somebody that sits in a bubble of Asian football, um, I hear quite a lot of uh, discontent from Europe, so I'm probably suggesting Brazil. Brazil look quite uh, handy. Uh, they well and truly hammered South Korea um, a few windows back. So with very little knowledge, I'd say Brazil. Last question. Is there anything I haven't asked that you think people should know or might want to know about either the national team or just the World Cup setup in general? One one key uh, question from us internally is kind of what's this legacy going to look like? And it goes back to your, probably your first question about kind of what was the intentions about acquiring the World Cup in the first place, trying to make it soft power, a very political statement, which has potentially kind of ruffled quite a lot of feathers over the last 10 years. Depending on how successful the World Cup is, will the QFA still get the funding that they need following the World Cup? There needs a lot of domestic reform. Qatari league football is uh, kind of at its lowest point for a good decade now. They're, they're lagging behind the best in Asia. So that's a concern. Um, and what will happen with these players? The overwhelming assumption is once the World Cup's over, these players are going to be able to go to Europe and test themselves out, which some of them haven't been able to kind of do that. So it'll be interesting if this will be a shop window in terms of uh, new clubs having a bit of an eye on um, talents from Asia, um, Qatar in particular whether this starts a new dawn for Middle Eastern football, really, not necessarily Qatari football, but Middle Eastern football as well. It'd be really interesting to see a couple of these talents do really well, or even the teams do well as a whole. Um, and then we start to actually get a foothold in terms of being a credible uh, shape moving forward. Martin, where can people follow you on Twitter? They can follow me at Martin underscore low underscore all my uh, kind of written content as we kind of creep closer to the World Cup is all on uh, the Asian game. And you can follow them by at the Asian game. All the links will be in the description. You guys follow Martin, follow the Asian game. And Martin, I really appreciate doing this, man. Thanks. No worries. Anytime. What do you guys know about Ecuador then? I don't know if you guys have some fun facts about Ecuador, but Enlighten me. Wait, what's the name of that guy that used to play for West Ham? Is it is, is it Ena Valencia? Wait, I'm yes, getting confused. Yes, yes, they do. Like, he's there still, I think. Plays for Fenerbahce. The only okay, reason yeah, I know that yeah, is yeah. because Michi Bechewaya also plays there. So I'm kind of monitoring. But, you know, I reached out and the homie Juan Diego Alvarado was gracious enough to give us some of his time. So here's our conversation that I had with Juan. My name is Juan Diego Alvarado. Born in Guayaquil, Ecuador. I'm 26 years old. I'm a producer with CNN in Spanish for sports. On the side, I like to get together with some friends and do some uh, content on the Ecuadorian national team slash Ecuadorian soccer on Twitter. It's called Warriors of Ecuador. It's managed by my guy, uh, Martin Benitez. But my main my main uh, activity right now, it's producing with CNN. I, I thought about it so much when I read that question that, uh, that how to explain what soccer is everything means, you know? And to put it into perspective, I just uh, came with the thought that uh, 
here in the United States, soccer is big, but it's not big enough to like, you know, put a soccer player as president of the country or like as a uh, senator of a state or a governor of a state. That's how big soccer is in Ecuador. In Ecuador, you can have soccer players going to Congress and people will vote for them because that's what it means for them. You know, that's everything we got, basically. And that's everything we see. You might not have great schools. You might not have great universities. But what you have is a TV with color that can broadcast soccer games on Sundays. Uh, people on Sundays, I've seen it in, occasion, in occasions, excuse me, and I find it so funny that on Sundays, the only shirt they got is the team shirt, either Barcelona, Emelec, or now Liga de Quito and Independiente del Valle. And they, and even if the team is off season and they're not playing or they, they're eliminated, that's the shirt they got because, because Sunday shirt is your team shirt because that's the day teams play. Soccer is everything. We wake up, we read soccer. I feel like the newspaper and, and, and like everywhere else in the world, the sports section is the one that makes the most money. I've seen taxis packed with the uh, team's memorabilia and the national team. And I think, it, uh, to be honest, I think it's a little bit smaller than the clubs themselves. People love the clubs even more than the national team, but the national team, when it's doing good, especially now, it definitely pushes people together. It becomes one unit and we're really, really excited for Qatar 2022 but at the same time, kind of nervous about it. But yeah, to answer your question, soccer means everything for us. You guys didn't have a World Cup until 2002, but Correct. since 2002, this is your fourth World Cup. Yes. So so basically in your lifetime, Ecuador have been generally World Cup appearers. 20 years exactly, actually, this World Cup from our first qualification. With my age, I'm young, and I have seen this team succeed a lot. I've talked with my father, for example, and his history with the world national team, it's much more <laughs> tough, but uh, yeah, no, 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 it's definitely, definitely uh, something rewarding to see the team succeed and to be competing uh, most of all. Let's get into qualification. If you could share with me how that went. To put that into perspective, we have to talk about the last one. 2018, we failed to qualify after winning four matches in a row, the first four matches. Every team that won the first four games of the qualifier, they made it to the World Cup. But that one time, Ecuador, we broke that streak and we were the first team to not qualify after winning four games. What happens? The whole FIFA gate thing uh, exploded. The president of the federation, the FEF, uh, Federación Ecuatoriana de Fútbol or Ecuadorian Soccer Federation, he got uh, involved in this issue. He got kicked out of the uh, federation. He was the one involved in the qualifications to 2002. 2006, 2014. What I'm trying to say, he knew how to manage that team. He went out and that collapsed the team. You can see, you, if, if you look at the times when this happened and how well the team was doing, you would see how it went down like a falling jet into the ground, the performance of the team after all this thing broke out. Because the structure got lost. The vice president took over, but he didn't have the authority. And Ecuador was in a very, very low spot. The best thing that the vice president, Villasis, came in, he appointed Jorge Celico as the uh, under 20, under 17, even I, I even think under 15 coach. So he was going to manage the youth system. Ecuador has been working in, in its youth system for a minute now. At least it's going to be 20 years with what? Not the birth, but the change in leadership of this team called Independiente Jose Terán. Today known as Independiente del Valle. Independiente Jose Terán came in with a business mentality, which was uh, investing in youth, 
to then sell big. And that has been a total success. 10 years of history, a little more, 15 years of history that team has. And developing youth has given them two international cups in four years, I believe. This youth development system is not of Argentinian players. It's not of Brazilian players. It's not of Colombian player, players. It's of Ecuadorian players. So this Ecuadorian young players who are performing really well, they go into Celico's team in the youth system and they perform like crazy. They, they've grown up and they are now in the big national team. So Gustavo Alfaro took over the team with this youth generation. He basically told this kid, kid to come out and play. And it definitely uh, took everyone by surprise. If you go five years back, no one expected Ecuador to qualify, especially after 2018 uh, failure. Because we were also after the uh, generation of Antonio Valencia, who was our Manchester United player. And uh, we were on defensive. We were we would get the quality of player again. But yeah, definitely surprised to see the results we got in this qualifier. Super consistent. Because we Ecuador plays in Quito, and Quito's in the altitude. There's that argument that Ecuador qualifies because of the altitude. No, no, no. This qualifier, Ecuador qualifies, qualified because it has a good team. They perform on the road in, I, I believe, every single game. They, they didn't do a bad game, not even against Brazil. They lost, but uh, it was a good performance over, overall. In my opinion, this is the World Cup that we were not supposed to go to. We were all aiming to go to 2026. Let's see what happens because still, like I'm saying, these kids, most of them are like 22, 20-year-olds. Senegal and, and Netherlands are pretty strong. So I would say most people would have Ecuador third, maybe even last because of Qatar being the, the host nation. Mm-hmm. I don't know how wise that is given the foundation that you just set and how difficult we know South American qualification is. So is there pressure on Ecuador to get out of the group? And what are your expectations for I love the World that. Cup? I love that the uh, picture people have is that Ecuador is not a contender in the group because I love that because that even releases pressure from our team. Uh, the first game is going to be, for me, the toughest. That's the, the game I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the most because no host nation has ever lost uh, an opening game. Not even South Africa lost its opening game. And say, for example, we tie with uh, Qatar. We're against the wall because, uh, like you said, Senegal is probably Senegal is the African champion. And, of course, the Netherlands then, that's a World Cup contender. But yeah, the first game is definitely, for me, the most important one, that opening one. I hope we can break that uh, streak of the host nation not losing the home game. I I know for sure that Ecuador is a better team than uh, Qatar. But the, cir- the circumstances that get that game is going to happen, in, it's going to put everything on a different uh, scale. You know, everything's going to be different at that point. Even, even I feel like Qatar would play good against any team on that game. Because, you know, it's all the hype. They got their people. They're probably going to have their uh, government uh, people up on the stands. They're going to have the eyes of the world. They want, they want to make everything a show to show that Qatar was able to pull off a World Cup, even with all the uh, the problems they've seen in the way. Like I said, Ecuador was the uh, top scoring team behind Brazil and Argentina, and Ecuador didn't lose to Brazil and Argentina at home. If Ecuador can compete against these teams, I feel like they can totally compete, put it into scale, the the teams that Ecuador plays with in the qualification and the places Ecuador has to go to play. It's definitely in good shapes to put a competition. If I had to pick someone that leads this team forward, it's definitely definitely the veterans we got because we got got a nice mix with uh, Angel Mena, Ener Valencia, and Alexander Dominguez, the goalie. 
the young lads are definitely uh, showing leadership. Pierre Capier from Leverkusen, he is a leader. He's a defender that leads the team, pushes it forward. Moises Caicedo from Brighton also, he's a kid that is not afraid of playing with anyone. This new generation, like I like like you said, no, like a Ecuadorian generation that grew up seeing Ecuador successful, and they want to see and they want to take Ecuador to the next level and keep playing with whoever it is. If it's Netherlands, if it's Senegal, Qatar, Argentina, Brazil, France, they want to compete. Gonzalo Plata, Pierre Capié, Moisés Caicedo, este, Pervis Estupiñán, he's, he's also like 25. In the end, the unit, the team that Ecuador has is what pushes it forward. They go hand by hand against anyone. And that's the thing to keep in mind. But if you want to go into talent and, and how we play, uh, definitely Moisés Caicedo is our player to watch. He is the best player we have. And I even, I, I even believe he can be better than Antonio Valencia. He plays right now at Brighton, and he had Graham Potter as the coach, and Graham Potter went to Chelsea, so there's talks that he might take Moisés Caicedo to Chelsea. And keep an eye, because Graham Potter said in uh, Brighton that Moisés Caicedo is worth $100 million. Uh, he said that for $40 million, you can get his boots. So that player, it's the player to watch, and he's what drives our team. Ecuador is a team with Moisés Caicedo and a different team without Moisés Caicedo. We're trying to play a uh, 4-3-3 recently with uh, one holding midfielder and two uh, central midfielders in Caicedo and Cifuente or Alan Franco. Ecuador is a team that is definitely defense first with a very solid back four with uh, Castillo, Torres, Incapiam, Estupiñan. Very solid defense. They know how to play with the feet. So they we, they even start plays from defensive situations. Our midfield is very physical, very strong. Very similar to Senegal, very strong players. In the midfield, we have Cifuentes. And up on top, that's where we are a little bit on the against the wall because our goal scoring hasn't been great yet. But I'm not I'm not too worried about that. I'm uh, first first of all in the World Cup, there's so many little games, like three games, that your defensive has to be key. If, if they don't score on you, there's a bigger chance you can win the games. And up on top, we have uh, Gonzalo Plata, who is a crack, very, very skillful. He plays for Valladolid. Uh, on the left, we have tried with Jeremy Sarmiento for Bright from Brighton as well. But I believe our player is going to be Romario Ibarra from Pachuca. Very fast. And up on top, Ener Valencia. So speed and physical power is definitely two uh, adjectives I would give to the Ecuadorian side. Who's going to win the World Cup? <laughs> I hope Ecuador. That's a dream. <laughs> definitely a dream. Something I, uh, I, I picture. And why not? Why not Ecuador? But if I have to make a, a safe guess, I'll go with Brazil. Besides 2014, Brazil has been up there and they have lost by details. 2006, Roberto Carlos was tying his shoe and Thierry Henry scored. 2010, they scored an own goal. 2018, they scored an own goal. Ever since 2002, besides 2014, that they played horrible because they didn't play the qualification. So they didn't know what players they were going to take or who, which players they were going to take. But every single World Cup, I feel like Brazil has been a candidate. Even last one, when they lost to Belgium. The only ones that can beat them are, are France, if I'm honest with you. But uh, I think it's going to be Brazil. Last question. Is there anything I haven't asked about Ecuador that you think people should know or might want to know? Keep an eye on Ecuador. Don't, don't sleep on Ecuador, like they like to say. We are, we are a small country. We're kind of timid at times because we, we, we haven't done anything uh, uh, except the Galapagos Islands. But if we get a chance, we're going to take it. <laughs> okay, if we get a chance, we, 
<laughs> yeah, if we got a chance, to be, that was very pessimistic to say uh, soccer is what we got. If we can make a scene in Qatar, I'm going to take it. Where can people follow you on Twitter? At JDAC96. Juan, I appreciate you doing this, man. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I hope uh, I, I get to listen the whole takes on everyone in this podcast. Let's talk about the Netherlands, guys. So this is a team from this group that I think most people would think they're going to top the group. Mm-hmm. How far do you think they can go? Tricky one. Because Netherlands are one of those teams where they can surprise you like they did in um, 2010 and 2014, or they could just completely just self-implode as they did like in not even qualifying for the O2 World Cup. So Netherlands, they're always a worst enemy, but I just feel that because they have no big stars, so there's no Clive, there's no Beckham, there's no Davies, there's no Seydorf, you know, mm-hmm. there's no Koku, so they cannot be more of a team. Van Hal has already been here, you know, because Van Hal was the guy in 2014. So maybe the Netherlands can do a little something, but it's hard for me to really get a gauge as to how well Netherlands will do. So they'll either surprise people and go far or just be like, eh, go out with a, a whimper, you know, as they did at the Euros. So do You know, the tricky thing about Netherlands is even when they did have all those players you named, they still haven't won it. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, shout out to Uncle Paul. I know you're out here listening. I do remember Uncle Paul on uh, Talking Tactics years and years ago said that uh, the Netherlands are cursed because they doomsday, you know, they did something, some sort of footballing god years and years ago. Johan Kroos stole Promethean fire. I, what? I'm... <laughs> I knew that was going to be <laughs> <laughs> I can feel it in the <laughs> Go ahead, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really... I'm high on this Netherlands team. So since Van Gaal's taken over, they've played 15 games. They've won 11. They've drawn four. They're unbeaten. They are playing a 3-5-2-ish modified. Memphis Depay's up front with Stevie Bergwijn. Uh, Cody Gakpo's as number 10. Daily Blind's really important to everything. I think Denzel Dumfries on, at right wing back is a liability. So I've, I've done my sort of predictions and I keep... Whenever I do it, I keep having the Netherlands playing Argentina in the quarterfinal stage. And I'm, it's basically a coin toss for me as to who wins that game. I think that will be one of the... If that game occurs, I think that will be one of the great games of this tournament. All right. So, Carl, do you want to introduce Case? Yeah, yeah. Coming up next is, is Dutch footballing expert Case Van Hemmen. He, he's part of one part of the Devil in the Details Manchester United podcast that I've also been on. And he's also just really smart, bright young chap who's helped me a lot when I've been uh, writing about players in Eredivisie. My name is Case von Hemmen. Uh, I'm, I'm a data scientist. Uh, I work as a data engineer right now. But uh, where you can find me is at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter. It's my podcast. We talk about Manchester United. So a little, little different topically from what we're going to do today. But uh, yeah. Firstly, your accent is very interesting to me. So did you grow up in Netherlands or are you Netherlands adjacent, like diasporic Netherlands? I grew up mostly in the U.S. My mom is American. My dad is Dutch, but I was born there. Yeah, there's thus, thus the no accent. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been asking people, like, what do you think the World Cup means to their country? And what does it do to the country? Like, how, how does it affect the mood of either the people or the nation itself? Dutch football culture, at least around the, the national team in the Netherlands, is uh, frantic. The people who are really into it are really, really, really into it. The, the country as a whole cares quite a bit but 
the people who are close to it are fanatics. And I'm sure if you've watched the World Cup, as a lot of people have, you see people covered in orange paint. It, it means a lot, but it means an incredible amount to a, a select few uh, who follow the team really closely. Would you say there's more passion around maybe Ajax or AZ or all those different types of places rather than the national team? Like, is is there more passion around the club game than than the national team? I guess. I would say on like on a national level, yes. But I would I would say the the people who do care a lot about the national team care about as much as the ultras would for uh, the major clubs, which I think is actually not necessarily true for other European countries, at least. Let's talk about qualification. So it was a tight group with Turkey and Norway, but you guys narrowly escaped. How would you describe that process? Nerve wracking because of uh, how the last qualifying campaign went uh, for the World (laughs) Cup. Uh, Especially we had a scare against Turkey uh, way back in March of the year before. Uh, But honestly, we played well throughout. I, I was never too concerned because I felt we were by far the best team in that group. Whereas it, the last time around, we just weren't a very good team, especially once we made a managerial switch after the Euros, the football improved markedly uh, and we sort of cruised. It, even even though it looked closer than, than, than that, I'd say we cruised. Are Netherlands trending in the right direction? Obviously, you guys have had pretty good success in the Nations League. I think you're in the semifinal or final for, for next year, I guess it is. Do you think you guys are trending in the right direction ahead of Qatar? Yes, I think so. We've we've got some injury problems. In particular, there's some jeopardy around whether Memphis is going to be ready. He hasn't played for Barcelona since the last international break where he picked up a knock. So I think that's the, the real concern as opposed to form is whether we're going to be healthy. But other than that, I th- I'm, pretty, I'm pretty confident that things will go at least, I think we'll meet expectations at least. I'll put it that way. What are the expectations then? I'd say at least the quarterfinals. If you look at the group, the teams that we're likely to, to face in the round of 16, I would say anything less than a quarterfinals appearance and putting up a good fight against presumably Argentina would be meeting expectations. But honestly, I think we have the capacity to, to beat Argentina. Um, and if you can beat Argentina, I think you can beat anyone in this tournament. How would you define success? So quarterfinals is your definition of success? No, success is anything beyond that, I think. Though, okay. though really, I think what <laughs> I've seen the Netherlands make it to two World Cup semifinals in the past three World Cups, and one final. So I have to say, anything short of winning it isn't going to really get my blood pumping, but you have to be realistic. Um, Let's talk about the new manager, or the old manager. I'm not quite sure how to describe him. So Louis van Gaal is back. What has he brought to your team, or brought back to your team in that way? He brings a sort of cult of personality, I would say. There's a lot of confidence in him as a person, just because of how huge a figure he is in, in Dutch football and culture. I think it does give a certain a sense of confidence to the team, um, especially since the international football scene has fewer high-profile managers. The only manager you could, who you could strongly argue is of a higher caliber in their career who's managing a major national team right now is Luis Enrique of Spain. Outside of the tactical aspect, which I think he's strong in, if a little bit conservative, I think that the biggest effect he has on this team compared to his predecessors is a sense of confidence and a sense that we deserve to be going toe-to-toe with these other teams that we haven't done so much in the past decade or so. Let's do players to watch then. So who's a player that you're curious to see at the World Cup in games against Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and perhaps beyond? Somebody that you think, ooh, they could have a good a good World Cup. The big X factor right now is Cody Gakpo. He plays for PSV Eindhoven. I assume some people who are listening uh, – 
will know who that is, but he's he's been linked recently to Manchester United and, and Arsenal. He he recently came into the the first eleven uh, for the national team after really sort of been being in and out. But uh, there was a, a formation change which saw us go from sort of our more typical four three three formation to a three five two three four one two depending on how you want to describe it. And he came in as the attacking midfielder specifically in these last two international breaks, and it looks like he's locked on in, in the team. Um, so he's sort of a question mark. We don't know what he's going to give us, but uh, I think he has the potential to either elevate this team if he plays really well or limit them a lot if he doesn't. How do you use your work or or how would you use your work to analyze the national team? So I, I, I do a lot. Uh, I've, I've written a few articles about the team, especially our performance last season at the Euros or last year at the Euros. There's a ton of data uh, in, in football uh, and it's proliferating a lot. Uh, something I, I'm, I sort of obsessively am looking at is expected goals, which I'm sure people are familiar with who are listening to this. Uh, a good way to get sort of use it, a good heuristic, if you want to know how competitive a team is, is to look at basically the shot quality they're generating versus the shot quality against them. So that's something I look at with the national team, with club football, pretty applicable. Um, and yeah, I mean, the data is more reliable the further forward on the pitch you get. So forwards, we have better data for than we do for defenders. It's just easier to quantify what they do. Uh, but the player that I, I would say I, I like the most who made the provisional squad yesterday, we had a 30 mi- 39 man provisional squad released is um, Chavi Simmons. Uh, who's mm. a teammate of Cody Gakpo's actually. Um, and people m- might know who he is because he was sort of a, a child superstar at Barcelona and later PSG, but he's, blossomed into a really exciting footballer both statistically and on the pitch um and so i would say he's probably the 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 player i would be most excited to see but i'm not sure he'll actually be on the plane to qatar so we'll see who do you think wins the world cup i will take netherlands off the table okay thank you i appreciate that you're Um, welcome spain argentina and brazil are the three teams that i think have the best chance i will say if argentina can beat us they will win it so, so that'll be my pick since I can't pick the Netherlands. <laughs> so, Argentina. Okay. All right. This is my surprise question. This is my fun question. And as a data scientist, I'm quite curious which player you're going to pick on this one. If you could bring back one Dutch legend into this team, who are you bringing back to fix a problem or to bolster an area and why? Okay. I, my, I have my answer already. Uh, it's Arjen Robben. was a star of our team the last time we were uh, at the World Cup. And, and the reason I, I pick him and the reason I, I don't even really have to think about it is we have a huge lack of talent on our wings, which is why we're playing a 3-5-2 formation. Or one of the reasons is because we don't need to use wingers. What Robin would, would bring is he would be like a world-class creative threat, um, which honestly, personally, I think our current team is better than the, the team we had in 2014 or even in 2010. But the one thing that those teams did have that our current team doesn't have is really a elite world-class forwards and and that's what robin would be for us that would be a perfect team to me cool all right last question is there anything i haven't asked about the dutch national team that you think is particularly important relevant that people should know or might want to know sure um so the, the the main controversy right now around the team is whether long term stalwart of the team daily blind will start at the world cup almost every dutch manager since blind has a been made available earlier on in his career to the national team has started him. But recently he's made some pretty high profile mistakes defensively that have called his his spot in the team into jeopardy, at least in the in public. 
he maintains the backing of his manager um, and he's pretty important to this team, what they do in possession. So uh, a major storyline will be whether he is starting and how well he is playing at this World Cup. All right. Case, where can people follow you on Twitter? Yeah, my Twitter is at Hemin Case, spelled, Case spelled the same way, K-E-E-S. All the links will be in the description. I thank you for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Happily. All right. We're back with the last team in the group. Have hope. I've been asking most of the African journalists that I interviewed this. And this is the one team where it actually feels like it could be a possibility. Are Senegal the semifinalists? And I hope you know what I mean by the semifinalists. No. It's a very good team. Very, very well coached. They don't, they don't have the quality. I just... I don't see them beating because they'll have to face either a very top team in the second round. Basically, even if they top their group, meaning that they'll most likely face an Iran, an America or Wales, most likely I think either an Iran or, or Wales, and they beat them, I don't see how they get past a quarterfinal. Because I just think that they're a good team, but this group I think is less talented than the O2 group. That O2 group, where, that was an amazing group. And I felt they were a much better and had much better players than this group. So, and they were super lucky to lose to Turkey in Oto. These guys, I just think it's a good team. They're a damn good team, very well organized to put together, but they're mm-hmm. just missing those really two, three individuals that the Oto team had, which is why I just think that, ah, nah. I just, I just, I just, I, just, I see them at quarters marks for them, unfortunately, man. They're Africa's best chance, Carl. Be respectful. They are, they are. That, that's, <laughs> I'm gonna make, let's make no mistake. The, the Senegalese team are, will be the, the furthest team of all the African nations in this World Cup. They're really good. And they're good in a way that I knew the, the headline player will be Sadio Mane, but the quality is their defense. They are a solid unit. And yeah, as Hope says, I think, I think they are, there's a good chance of them reaching the quarterfinals. I got to talk. This was the first interview I did, actually. So shout out to my boy, Amadi. Amadi Tiam, formerly of... He's, he's been everywhere. You can just look at his Twitter bio. It's actually crazy. This is the interview that I had with Amadi. My name is Amadi Tiam. I am a soccer journalist and digital content manager who has been on many podcasts from The Athletic to the actual Chelsea official. But right now I'm taking a different tact. I'm doing a lot of data and I've been working behind the scenes doing coding and basically working on a lot of analytic stuff because I feel like that's the next the next step for me. What do you think football means to Senegal in particular? To Senegal, it's a community driver. It's a way of bringing people together it's definitely a pastime that is shared by young and old however the majority um particularly in Senegal now the majority of fans are younger part of a younger generation who feel that there's promise they don't know they don't necessarily know what it's like to not be good and i think that's, a, that's kind of a new thing for the senegalese football federation and senegalese people in general so i think it represents hope and community how was your qualification process we had our ups and downs but we definitely looked like we belonged we definitely looked like we were made to be in the in the world cup Egypt found that out, but I, I, I will say there were some lapses, and honestly, I understand that you know because during the club season, a lot of times you can't get all your players or whatever it might be injuries. But I still think the core of the team is there, and they look strong. I would still say that they're in good form. Obviously, drawing I think Iran most recently. If you look at the stats of those games, it wasn't necessarily as close as the scoreline suggests. A one-one draw, it may have been, but you know we made a lot of subs. We had a fair amount of change within like the key areas of the pitch, uh, which I think is something that Aliou Cisse has tried to, to stay away from. But in this game, I think it was just a, a baseline. We're not necessarily using that as the only way to, to get an indication of the team. 
but I think they're still riding a high from AFCON. This team definitely believes in itself, uh, even if there have been changes, even if it doesn't isn't the exact same team from AFCON. That victory and that belief has carried through, and I think that that's going to be a big reason for their form to stay high going into the World Cup. Whether tactically, whether you want to use your data, whether it's an eye test vibe, how would you describe how Cisse is managing the team? I think Cisse has done a very admirable job. I mean, the guy has been on the biggest stage and <clears throat> not succeeded with Senegal back in 2002. He has the pedigree understanding of this sort of younger group of players. However, I think he's well aware of the fact that he needs his stars to shine. He needs the the Manes, he needs the the Ismail Asars, he needs the Kulubalis, uh, the Mendes to really show up, the, the Ganagays, to be the players that they represent basically for their country right now. I think that he's well aware that Sadio Mane is going to bear the brunt of the criticism if they lose and the praise if they win. However, I think that Mane, in particular in the AFCON victory, showed that he can be a team player and really be the kind of player that Cissé needs him to be for that side. I think that Cissé has managed the team well, keeping their tactics consistent, making sure that he plays players who might be on the fringes, to also getting the best out of those, those players who need to perform. I mean, it's not it sounds very simple, but many a manager has failed in doing so. And he's seemingly succeeding so far. Let's talk expectations. So how far do you think you can go? And how far do you think you will go? Our capability as a team, particularly in the group we are in, and I wouldn't say it's easy because no World Cup group is easy. Everyone should be aware that every single group presents its own challenges, in particular facing against the home con- the home country of Qatar. But yeah, having Netherlands and Ecuador in that group is, n- is no easy feat either. I mean, any of these teams could be a dark horse. And that's kind of the challenge, really, is kind of sizing up your opponents and preparing for what might come. That being said, I think they could easily make the quarters. They showed last tournament that they have the pedigree to perform against teams who are you know, around their level, so to speak, but they performed well against Poland. They should have gotten past Japan. That BS, whatever was, fair play points that they got to knock Senegal out. I'm still salty about that. But that's how far I think that they can go. How far I think they will go, I think they'll make it out of the group. I don't want to say much more than that because I feel like we'll jinx ourselves. But they are capable of much more. However, any every World Cup is just, it's crazy. You never know what could happen. Senegal seems the team earmarked as Africa's best chance. The whole continent is going to ride for you in, in a way. Mm. Maybe not maybe not the whole continent, but most of it. I don't most want to get into <laughs> geopolitics. Yeah, but... I know. I know. <laughs> so, so, so how do you think Senegal will cope with the pressure of being Africa's team? I think that they're already aware that they're Africa's team. I mean, they won AFCON. They had a lot of support worldwide, really. I mean, because Senegalese players are now so international. And, and I, I know that every country has that sort of pedigree now but it's the exposure that i think is the biggest thing people really look at senegal now and they say okay they're they're currently africa's best team that's on paper it might not be what the egyptians think it might not be what the cote d'ivoireans think but it is the current reality and i think that many people will face facts when it comes to the tournament if they want to see an african team succeed their best bet might be on senegal's shoulders that's not too much of a daunting prospect, I think, for this team or for this for this manager. Um, I think that that's something that they want. I think they want that kind of belief in them, whether it's from their opponents or from their uh, from their fans. It's kind of the mark of a good team, you know. Like you, you hate to play the Royals and the Barca's and Champions League. You hate to face good teams because you know that their pedigree is always high. I think Senegal would love to be considered as one of those types of teams. Can you describe what's going on with Keita Balde? What is this storyline in particular? Do you think it will have any? ramifications or knock-on effect to what Senegal can do. So the deal with Kitabalde is he, well, first of all, he's a Senegalese winger. He plays for Spartak Moscow currently. 
Um, but last April, or this past April rather, he was playing for Italian side Cagliari, and they lost to Udinese 5-1. And to add insult to injury, he was called for a drugs test. He returned a negative result, but he was judged to have broken protocols, and he's been suspended until December 5th, which, as you probably know, is right in the middle of the World Cup. And he's been suspended by the Italian National Anti-Doping Organization. So Spartak posted about it, saying that he'd been disqualified in connection with a, quote, violation of the doping control procedure. Um, and they continued to say, in a sample taken that day from Keita, no prohibited substances were found. Nevertheless, in accordance with the disciplinary code, any doping-related sanction applied by another national or international sports association, the National Anti-Doping Organization, is automatically accepted by FIFA and must be recognized by all confederations and associations. So yeah, it's an automatic ban. It's effective immediately. But FIFA is still waiting for translated English documentation from Italy before verifying the procedures in the decision. They can send the case to the, to the CAS, the Court of Operation for Sport, and he could also appeal to the Swiss court. So Senegal, the Senegalese Federation, said it was, quote, closely monitoring the development of the situation, but they expected him his ban to run until the 22nd, which is four days after the final of the World Cup. So when they start their World Cup campaign against the Netherlands on the 21st of November, it's very likely that Valde will not be a part of the team. How big of a loss is that if it is? If you ask any Senegalese person, it's it's a frustration thing watching him or rather not watching him perform at the, at the levels they want when he plays internationally. There's no doubting his quality. And he's been kind of a journeyman in the last couple of years. Uh, as you've seen, he's, he's in Italy, now he's in Russia. He's just never really settled. And I feel like that's been the story of his career. I feel like maybe if he were to play in this tournament, he might have a breakout year. He might have a, a something to hang his hat on. But Baldi's... And no offense to him, he's just always been a bit of a, a disappointment. You know, it's never he's never reached the heights that people expected from him. And this latest thing doesn't help anybody. <laughs> so give me a player to watch, whether it's a star, whether if you want to go with Mane, Mendy, etc. A young player who people might not know about that's breaking into the team, or maybe a veteran who's like this is this might be their last World Cup and it's just somebody to keep an eye on. Like, who is your player to watch for Senegal? People are going to say this is silly, but I think there's two players. The first is Sheko Kuyate. Uh, Kuyate, as many Premier League fans know, he's been a, kind of a mainstay in, in mid-table teams. He's played for Crystal Palace. Uh, he's currently at Forest. I believe he was at West Ham. He's one of those sorts of players who he, he could play at center back, but he's been used in center midfield and slowly over his, the course of his career. He's only 32, but I mean, that's as any football fan knows, that's pretty late. For him, that's been true in that sense that he has been able to really kind of stake a claim to not just being a midfield destroyer, but someone who's box to box. He's good in the air. He's deceptively strong, even though he's a very like live looking player and he covers the ground. He's not one to, to, to shirk his responsibilities, whether it's defending or simply just running. The fact that Ganage will be probably the most high profile center midfielder that we have in the starting lineup, I think Kuyate will be a, will be a mainstay so that he can support him. Ganage isn't necessarily the most offensive. Yes, he can put in a shift, but I feel like Kuyate, again, is sort of deceptively effective in the box-to-box role, and I think he'll free up space for Ganage. The other person I wanted to say was, I'm hoping is going to be an influential player. It's probably obvious, um, maybe not to everyone, but I think Eduard Mendy. Obviously, you know I'm a Chelsea fan. He hasn't necessarily had the good, the best start to the season. I think he's the kind of player who thrives on confidence, whose good performances buoy him, and help him continue to play better. And I also feel like he's the kind of player that when bad things happen, they compound. As we've seen recently, he's had some howlers, and he's playing in a team that a lot of people probably didn't necessarily believe he belonged to when he first joined. 
but he proved himself. He's shown he can be a world-class keeper in the Champions League of all, of all tournaments. He put in shift after shift, showcasing not only good shot-stopping, but an intelligent mind. It was his pass that was out to Chilwell before Mason Mount's assist in the Champions League final. But there have been times when he's had lapses, and I feel like when he does, the entire team suffers, whether it's Chelsea or Senegal. It's imperative that he has a stellar tournament, particularly in the first couple games, so that he can get some, you know, his leg his legs under him, get some confidence. I really do expect a lot from him, and I think that he can be sort of a second on-field captain. You can't say Senegal. Maybe you wouldn't even because you wouldn't want to tempt fate. But who's going to win the World Cup? Uh, I'm going to say France. Only because I don't want to pick Germany, and I think that they will win. But France is, it's like the second, second African team, and I'm not going to pick Cameroon, even though I have Cameroonian lineage. I would like to support an African team. I feel like France is basically an African team. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not picking yeah. Ghana. I'm not yeah. picking Cameroon. So what, what, what about our Tunisian and Moroccan brother? Morocco? Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. All right. Um, is there anything I haven't asked that you think people should know or might want to know? Maybe people already know this, but I think it's worth recalling. When Senegal won the, the African Cup of Nations, the, the response within the country was insane. Uh, I don't know if you saw the photos. The country shut down. I mean, there were photos taken from in front of the president's house where they were outside celebrating. There were people. Every street was blocked. Taxi drivers were sitting on top of their cars. People were literally partying in the streets, and it was days. And that feeling, you know, if we could bottle that feeling and make people understand what the feeling of the team being successful means to the people of the country, they would understand kind of the, the expectation and the hope. And it's the same hope that every team has. You know, it's the same desire to win and be successful that any team has. However, the way that African teams in particular embrace and celebrate football as not only just a, a spectacle, but as a, you know, sort of a way of life, it makes it almost like a, a better underdog story, you know, hoping to cheer for them, to see them be successful, to see the effect it has on their people. Being one of those people, having family who are amongst those people and, and talking to them after the African Cup of Nations win, knowing what that means to them and how that kind of has kept them afloat in more ways than one, particularly following COVID. I, I know the power of the sport. I know how, how much it means. And I feel like if if he even came close, it would be just this amazing pinnacle and way to cap off an already amazing year. So, Amadi, if you could tell people where to follow you on Twitter. You can follow me at Amadouit, A-M-A-D-O-I-T, double underscore. Follow my ramblings there. Yeah, his link will be in the description. Amadi, I thank you for doing this, bro. Thank you for taking the time, man. Anytime and always, bro. Peace. Guys, who's going to make it out of this group? That's oh, not making the semis, man. Yeah. Okay. What? Yeah. Swear. It's a troll. He's trolling us. He's trolling us. So I'm going Netherlands to top the group, Senegal to go to finish second. Most people would probably think that. But don't sleep on Ecuador. Don't sleep on Qatar. Obviously, home nation tax and that. I'm the same. But but also, I think all these teams are going to win one game, if such a thing is possible. This will be, this will be... <laughs> Is that possible? Yeah, I think this will be a tighter group than everyone believes it to be. I think Senegal is better than... Senegal's very good. They are my pick to finish second. Netherlands should top it. I think Ecuador's better than most people are giving them a chance for. Moses Cancelo is a very good player. Estupan, uh, who's also played at Brighton, is also a very good player. And Qatar, how can I put this politely? They are in the midst of a four-month-long World Cup camp. And after what I saw the Russian national team do, I am not writing off a host. Qatar <laughs> make it the same as... Qatar make it the same as... So my so, thing is... 
who follows Qatar out of that group. I'm hoping it's Senegal, but I really don't know. So basically, it's do, do Senegal or Netherlands follow Qatar out of that group. But Qatar making those semis. So, guys, thank you for listening to our group A preview. We thank all the guests who've come on. Martin, Juan, Case, and Amadi. Much appreciated. And yeah, we will see you guys tomorrow for group B. You can follow me at Daniel to look. Carl, where can people find you? Anchorman616. Half Hope, where can people find you? Um, Halfhopefootballhot.com around the corner. Talking Tactics Podcast. Sometimes funny. Sometimes serious. But always football. Take care. Indeed, indeed. We'll see you tomorrow. Sports Social Podcast Network.